I'm going to bring our remarks on the book of Joel to a close today. I'd like to look at chapter 3 of Joel. Again, it seems the overwhelming pattern that is found in the scripture, that in the midst of darkness and gloominess, there is always a message of hope from God to his people. Uh, this chapter kind of actually outlines uh, what most have considered to be the last and final day upon this earth. There was a theme. Uh, I'm sure that we pointed out at some point. If we didn't, we'll point it out now. There was a theme that was written through the book of Joel about the day of the Lord. That is the overwhelming theme of this book, that there is coming a day of the Lord. Uh, there can be uh, small examples of that, especially when he was dealing, when the Lord was dealing with Israel. He would call them to repentance. They would not repent. Then he would deal with them justly. Uh, even in his mercy, though, would not completely destroy them. And you might could say that in a small sense in Israel's history, there was a day of the Lord, just like in your life when the Lord deals with you uh, and chastises you for, for going the wrong direction. There is a day of the Lord, so to speak, in your life at that time. But overall, there is going to be a coming final day of the Lord when God executes his vengeance and his wrath upon the wicked and hell deserving of this world. Trapped in the midst of that are God's people. Trying to figure out which way to go and what to look at. I'd like for you to notice also in uh, chapter 3 of Joel, uh, there's that very often quoted and very misunderstood verse, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. This is often presented uh, as God pleading with the nations and people of the world uh, to accept him, to come forth and be saved, whatever, be baptized and be saved. And it's just you are in the valley of a decision and you need to make the right decision. Uh, if, you'll, if we'll back up and get kind of a running start within this chapter, we'll realize uh, that the decision that is being made here is not the decision of the people, it's the decision of the king. That's what's under consideration here. It is the Lord's decision at the end of time. But let's back up a little bit. Let's begin reading. Well, one thing we'd like to point out. Verse 13, Joel chapter 3, verse 13. We'll kind of start here for a little bit. He says, but put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. There is an abundance of wickedness that is laid out within this chapter about the heathen of this world. Uh, the Bible tells us if you offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. Uh, you, there's one slight sin that all of us could be guilty of that would send us to hell. Uh, the reality is, is that when, when the wicked stand before God, it won't be one slight sin. There, there'll be an overabundance of, of reasons that God has to punish the wicked. And notice he says here, he says, the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Have you, ever, have you ever seen somebody stomp out grapes? Have you ever seen them crush grapes to make wine? 
and they'll, they'll fill it a little bit and it kind of flows out some. This is not, this is not minorly full. This press is full and it's overflowing. And the reality is, is that God had not interceded on our behalf in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We'd be included in that group. Let's back up. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations, and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Uh, he says that there's coming a time when God will bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So when you think about Israel's history, when you think about them being down in Egyptian bondage for 400 years, that there was a time that he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And then there will come a time in their history when uh, they will be delivered into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hand and they will be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, but they will be brought out of that captivity. This is an allusion to that. He says, when I said I will bring again the captivity of Judah or Jerusalem. He's not putting them in captive. He's taking those who are captive and pulling them out. And the reality that we all have is that as we live in this world down here, whether we are captive to another nation or whether we are captive to another people, all of us are captive to sinful human nature. Uh, the one thing that we have the problem with the most is our old Adamic sinful human fallen nature. That thing plagues us more than anything else in this world. That nature that we have within us plagues us more than anybody else in this life. The thing that we have the most trouble with is our own sinful nature. And what we are looking for as God's people is, uh, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, we are looking for the, the entire creation groaneth together, waiting uh, in, in their tribulation, waiting in their trouble, waiting for the, the revelation of the sons of God, and in specific, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for that time when Christ comes back, the graves are opened, the, saint, the bodies of the saints which slept arose, and then those of us that are alive and remain at His second coming shall meet them together and be with the Lord forever. That essentially is what all of us are waiting for. We are waiting for that day when Jesus Christ comes back and redeems us and delivers us from the problems and troubles and trials of this life. But notice what he says here. He says there's coming a time that he will gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. You notice the definiteness of this, I will gather all nations it doesn't say that I would like to gather all nations. And it doesn't say I will attempt to gather all nations. There's a thing that puzzles me. I want to know if it puzzles you. I don't care what branch of Christianity people cling to on Sunday mornings. 
when you get to talking about the last days, you get to talking about the final days, most preachers paint that last final day, whether you call it Armageddon or whether you call it the apocalypse or whatever you call it, they paint it just as black and dark and gloomy and dreadful as they possibly can. This is definitely going to happen. Well, I have no qualms with that, do you? It's a surety. This world is headed for one final conflict against the Almighty. It's going to happen. Final conflict against God is a surety. God's destruction of the wicked is a surety. God will win in the end. That is a surety. However, your salvation is kind of up to you. Does that make any sense? Well, the argument goes that God is not going to save anybody unless, uh, unless that person allows God to save him. If you'll, just, if you'll just commit to the Lord, God will save you. Well, my question is, is if God can't save me unless I let him, then can he condemn me unless I let him? Because the application is exactly the same. Well, the argument then is, well, it's all because of your unbelief. If you don't believe in God, you have to go to hell. Why do I have to go anywhere? If I don't believe in God, why do I have to believe in hell? Well, you don't have to believe in hell to go to hell. You just don't, have, you just don't believe in God. So if, if I don't believe in God, I have to go to hell. But what if I don't believe in hell? Well, you don't have a choice about that. About that. You see, both camps have God implementing uh, an end upon somebody without their decision. It's just that our camp says that God has implemented salvation to you without your decision. And just as sure as God is going to destroy the wicked at the last day, He is going to save His people from their sins. And he says, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. This, this phrase, gather all nations, uh, the term gather here seems to carry with it uh, an idea of great force. That This is kind of not optional. I'd like you to notice for me and turn to uh, Zephaniah chapter Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8. It's, Zephaniah is just a couple of books past Joel. It's right here near the uh, end of the Old Testament. He says in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now listen to verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. 
there's two great things going to happen at the last day. The wickedness of this world and sin itself will be finally and totally, completely put away. The second thing that's going to happen is God's people that shall inhabit heaven will be given something. They will be given, in verse 9, a pure language. And with that pure language, they will call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one consent. As much as we like to try and serve the Lord now, and as much as we want to call upon the name of the Lord now as best we can, our ability uh, is faulty at best. Our efforts are hindered at best. The only time that we will have a pure voice and a pure tongue is when we were standing in the pure presence of Jesus Christ. Notice also for me, Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, and we will read verse, in reading with verse 16. Isaiah 66 and verse 16 says, For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. They shall sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination of and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed. Together, saith the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come, and I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal, Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. Uh, what's the idea that's carried out here? The idea that's carried out here that when God gathers all nations together, he's going to execute upon him his fierce wrath and his fierce judgment, and they're going to see the true glory of God at that time. There can be no denying Almighty God at that time. There's no, no going to be denying the glory of God. There's no going to be denying the existence of God. When the wicked see him, they will see, they will fear, and they will tremble at his presence. I'd like you to notice one more thing here. Turn with me to Second Chronicles. Uh, Joel mentioned that he would bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So if you'll turn with me to Second Chronicles, uh, I'd like to take maybe a small lesson from this. Uh, because only in the book of Joel is this phrase, the valley of Jehoshaphat, mentioned. Nowhere else is it mentioned in Scripture. But we do know something about Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a, was a good king. Um, and his story is laid out for us, or a portion of his story is laid out in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Before we get into that, did you notice how many times in our reading we ran across the word plead? That the Lord would plead for his people. The Lord would plead for Israel. It's right there in the book of Joel, and it was there in, in Isaiah as well. And uh, the misconception may be that God is pleading in a sense of begging. 
begging with the world. He's begging with folk around him. That is not necessarily the case with the word plead. If you were to come before a judge, you wouldn't be necessarily begging. You would be arguing, arguing your case. You would be presenting evidence on your behalf why something was or was not done or why you ultimately why you are innocent of, of any charge. God is not begging with any of these people. God is presenting his cause for his people to them. Like you notice here in Second Chronicles chapter 20. You begin reading with verse 1. It says, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. So here's word that comes to him. There's a great vast multitude. There's a great vast army coming against you. Uh, you get Jehoshaphat's reaction in verse 3 when it says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat is in kind of a bad position here. There's an invading army coming against him, and that invading army is more and mightier than he is. Uh, is that not quite your observation of this world around us? That when truth rises up, there seem to be in this world around us more that want to pursue falsehoods, that want to pursue lies, that want to pursue things other than the truth. When you stand for what's right in this world, do people pat you on the back? Do you get your name and shining lights in the world around you? No. It's easier for human beings to believe a lie than it is the truth. We face, in many cases, the same situation that Jehoshaphat faced. Great and mighty armies, more noble than us, surrounding us. If you think about the political correctness that is just uh, corroding the fiber of America today. Uh, this, this idea that trans women are women, whatever that means. The one question that they're not answering is what really is a woman? Jehoshaphat had enough sense to realize when he's faced with mounting armies around him to seek the Lord and all Judah sought the Lord with him. It says in verse 15, he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Oh, would to God that we could understand that simple phrase. That the battle is not yours, but God's. In some cases, you cannot beat somebody enough and change their mind. You may change their activities 
by simple pressure and coercion, but uh, as the saying is, a man convinced against his will is of the same mind still. Someone may go along with it simply because he doesn't have the power to override the forces pressing him just as much as they uh, just as much as they herded people into boxcars uh, in, in when the Nazis had overtook Germany, you say they were willing, they willingly got into the boxcar. No, they just couldn't defeat those with guns that pushed them into the boxcar. Notice what he says here. This battle is not yours. Again, he tells us in verse 17, Fear not, nor be dismayed. As Jehoshaphat and Israel proceeded on to to this great battle, it says in verse 22, When they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. And here's what happened. It says in verse 23, here's how... These three armies were smitten. The children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. So these two armies come to get these three armies come together and Ammon and Moab decide they're going to destroy Mount Seir. And then when they got destroying them, they turned and destroyed each other. Isn't that fantastic? And when Judah came to the watchtower, this is verse 24 in the wilderness, they looked under the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when you go through here and you read then the tale of this, Jehoshaphat and Judah then spoil the enemy for all their goods and all their jewels and everything they had, and it took them three days to gather up the treasures from those who had fallen and died at that army, uh, at that battle. The reality is, is that when God said, I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, he is reminding Israel There was a time when armies came against them. And Israel did not have to fight for itself. God fought for Israel and caused the armies themselves to destroy each other. And when people come at the final day to fight against God, they will utterly and completely be destroyed. There will be not one of them to prevail against the Almighty. When we said earlier, uh, back in in Joel 3, when we said that the uh, press is full, the fats overflow, and their wickedness is great, um, God lists for us here just a few of the problems, uh, sins and troubles that this nation around them had. Like you notice in verse 3 of Joel, it says, uh, and they have cast lots. For my people, and have given a boy for an harlot, 
and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Human trafficking is nothing new. Slavery was not instituted by white men who founded America. Slavery is not the stain on the foundation of Western civilization. Slavery is a stain on the entirety of the soul of humanity. Human trafficking, slavery, uh, disrespect of human beings uh, has been since the world began. Ever since Cain and Abel came before the Lord and offered sacrifices, and the Bible tells us that Abel and his sacrifice was accepted, but Cain and his sacrifice was not accepted, human beings have had trouble and problems getting along with each other, even from Adam and Eve, their parents. He says they have cast lots for my people. That kind of reminds us of what they did when Jesus was hanging upon the cross that they tore his garments from him and they cast lots, rolled dice to see which one of them would win the garment. They've given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Um, <clears throat> Y'all following the news lately, last few weeks? Y'all seen that Visa and MasterCard are both stopped operating in Russia now because Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Y'all seen that? Does that bother y'all a little bit? Does it bother you that our entire society is constantly pushing us toward a convenient cashless society where it's all electronic numbers and electronic transactions so that at the push of a button, somebody can uh, completely paralyze a society? Is that getting through to anybody? Is anybody paying any attention to this? And if they can be upset with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or if they can be upset with you supporting some freedom convoy, and they can stop the funding to it, it shows you that they also have the ability and power to stop human trafficking. They just choose not to. They have the ability to stop the sale of children into slavery. They just choose not to. I'd like for you to notice here in Amos, uh, it's just one page over in my book, but in Amos chapter 2, Amos chapter 2 and verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. So when a ball player kneels in front of the American flag because it supposedly represents some form of deep-seated systematic racism, I wonder how sincere they are when they continue to keep their Reebok contract with China that makes shoes in sweatshops run by children. America's oppressive. So is the rest of the world. And in some cases, the rest of the world is far greater. Well, what's interesting, even about the time of Israel that's spoken about in here in the book of Amos, 
is that Israel had something called indentured servitude. This was not where you went and took somebody and made them a slave. This is where somebody got in so much debt with somebody that they voluntarily became an indentured servant. And for a period of about seven years, they would work for this person, working off the debt as much as they could. But at the end of the seven years, the year of Jubilee, you had to return the person back to his family and back to his natural life. That, that, was, that was the purpose of for indentured servitude in Israel. Not the same thing. See, people talk about slavery in the Bible. They're not distinguishing what they're talking about. The problem, though, that Israel had gotten themselves into was you'd have this indentured servitude uh, who owed you an amount of money, and then you had maybe uh, your wife who wanted a new pair of shoes or she wanted a new outfit, and you didn't have the money uh, to procure that, She would just say, well, just go over here and sell Bill, your servant here, for sell his contract to somebody else. And then with that money that you would get from selling this person, you could buy your shoes or buy your house or buy your cars or whatever was on the market at that time. And as you can see, human beings really haven't changed all that much over the years. They They were dealing with each other or dealing in human beings as nothing but property. Uh, This is also laid out in uh, the book of Ezekiel. Let's turn over to Ezekiel um, 27. Ezekiel 27. There are lots of things that God is laying out. Here in this 27th chapter, this nation and that nation would do such and such a thing. But really what we just want to look at is uh, Ezekiel 27 and verse 13. Ezekiel 27 and verse 13, notice what it says here, that Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, they were thy merchants. They traded the persons of men and vessels of brass in thy market. What were they trading in the marketplace? Slave market. They had vessels of brass there, but ultimately, what, what were they trading in? Human beings. This has been something that uh, has lasted for generations. It is not a result of being white. It is not a result of being an American. It is a result of sinful human beings having no regard for their fellow man. He goes on to say here uh, in Joel chapter 3, he says in verse 4, Yea, what have I to do with thee, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coasts of Palestine? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your head? Uh, Job was a man who said, oh, that I could find where the Lord sitteth, where I could find where the throne of God was. I would come before him. I would order my cause before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. Uh, This is essentially what is being said here. Um, 
Bad things happen in this world. Is that, is that right? Bad things happen to you. Bad things happen to me. Uncomfortable things happen to us. Treacherous things happen. And the first cry of the world around us is, you know, if there really is a God, why do bad things happen? Well, my question is, if there wasn't a God, if there wasn't a standard of righteousness and a standard of what is good, how can you say that there's something that is evil? If there's not a standard of what is right, and here's that line, and something comes along that doesn't meet that line, you can say that that thing is bad or evil or it's not good, right? So if there's not a set standard of what is good, how can we say that there's anything that is evil or bad? We see bumper stickers all the time that people say, I believe in God. Well, good for you. There's also the humanist aspect that says, I just believe in good. And so my question is, good according to whose standards? Because Adolf Hitler had a standard of good that it was good to him to exterminate the Jewish people. Right now, we have a crazy man, not in our country, but in another country, who finds it a good thing to exterminate people who are standing in his way of reestablishing the original Russian USSR monarchy. By his standard, it's good what he's doing. Would we call it good what he's doing? If there's not a God and there's not a complete standard of what is righteous and what is right, there's no way you can say something is bad, evil, or wrong. So it's interesting to me that, that in this issue of political correctness nowadays, uh, well, essentially, notice verse 6 here. It says, The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians that ye might remove them far from their border. Um, so we're collecting these people and sending these people out and getting rid of these people so that we don't have to deal with them anymore. Uh, we're, we're shutting down the churches. We're burning the Bibles. We're getting rid of absolute standards of morality so that people don't have to deal with it anymore is essentially what is happening. And when you do that, then by what standard of morality will you live your life? You're going to live your life based on just live and let live? Well, there's a problem with that because there are some people who will do things that they have no problem with that you might have a problem with. I like my things, and therefore I lock my doors because I like my things. There may be somebody walking this planet who says, well, your things shouldn't belong to you. They should just belong to the community. We should all just live in a social commune environment. Y'all heard those words lately? Um, and what's interesting about the nation we live in is the concept of private property is not common everywhere. That's something that's special to our nation. You have private property, and what belongs to you between, you know, the stakes that are set up is yours and yours alone. And you're not obligated to give that to anybody. 
But there are those who believe, well, we all just sort of live in some little social commune gathering thing. We'll all be equal. The problem is under socialism and communism, we're all equally poor is what happens. But if you get rid, as he says here, the nation of Israel, if you get rid of the truth of God's word, then by what truth will you then govern your society? Because right now, a lot of the things that are being pushed in society in America are not being pushed by true science. They're not being pushed by common sense. They're being just simply pushed by who screams the loudest. The Lord says, will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? And that's kind of what he did to Job when Job said, if I could find the Lord's throne, I would order my cause before him. And God spoke and he says, where was you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where was you, Job, when I spoke this entire uh, universe into existence out of nothing? The reality is, is anybody that brings a charge or a complaint against Almighty God will ultimately find themselves with no place to stand. He says in verse 5, Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. Uh, I'm reminded of what happened in Daniel chapter 5 when uh, Belteshazzar, who was, uh, I believe he was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, I think is what ultimately it falls out to be. You know, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, ransacks the city, carries the Israelites away captive. He also ransacks and burns down the temple. And when he's in the temple, they gather out all the good gold pieces, the, the plates and the cups and things like that, and they take them away into Babylon. And then they're there for a period of years. Nebuchadnezzar dies, and Belteshazzar, his grandson, is now ruling there in Daniel 5. And what happens? Belteshazzar has a drunken feast one night, and he calls for the golden goblets, his golden cups, that his, that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had trotted away from the destruction of Jerusalem. Go over there and get those things and bring them over here, and we're going to use them in our little pagan feast. You say, well, what's that got to do with us? Think about the things that human beings have perverted and destroyed that God had given us to use wisely with. Marriage itself is one thing that is on the rocks in a lot of places. The Bible says that marriage is honorable in all. This is Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. But adulterers and whoremongers will God judge. The only thing that makes marriage different from any other relationship is the presence of intimacy. The intimacy that a husband has with his wife is the only thing that makes marriage something completely different than any other relationship on this planet. Y'all, y'all, do y'all see that? Do y'all think about that? I can have a relationship in here, a cordial acquaintance with any woman in here. But once that line is crossed from a cordial acquaintance to intimacy, something is wrong. And what has the world done with the intimacy that God gave Adam and Eve? They have corrupted it. 
They have perverted it. They have dirted it. They have turned it into something dirty and pathetic. And have you ever noticed, this is interesting. When I kiss my wife in the presence of my children, what do they say? Ugh, yuck. But you don't think about that when you kiss your girlfriend or your boyfriend in my presence, do you? See, we as the parents ought to be the one looking and saying, Ooh, yuck! Or what, what did they say in the movie, uh, You're in Love, How Disgusting for the Rest of Us? Secret Life of Pets or something of that. Um, have you ever noticed that when young people do things that the Bible calls fornication, or sin, or sodomy, or adultery, things like that. People don't bat an eye in America today. But if there's, you know, 70-year-old old people, 80-year-old old people holding hands, hugging, kissing, they think, oh, old people, that's not... No. That's what we all ought to aim for. That's what every one of us should want in our marriage is that at 70 or 80 or 85, there's still a spark of desire for that person that you are married to. But they have perverted things in America so much and in the world so much. Pornography is a billion dollar a year industry. Back in the 80s, there was, uh, was it 80s or late 70s when, when they came out with the first VCR? Uh, they actually came out with two different styles of cassette tapes, a VHS and a beta. And these two things were arguing in the market as to who's going to be uh, the, the, the leading delivery of, of audio-visual enjoyment. Do you want to know why VHS won out? It wasn't a technology thing. It wasn't a price thing. It was because when you went to your local video shop at that day, most of them had a back room with a locked door that children weren't allowed to go into. Y'all remember anything about this? Some of y'all look kind of crazy at me. Back in the day, these video stores that were a little hole in the walls had a little curtain in the back. Children weren't allowed to go into it. There was adult content back there. And adult content was primarily put out on VHS tapes. That's why VHS won out. Because everything... Most everything that human beings put their hands on, they corrupt. Most everything that they get their hands involved in, they corrupt, they pervert, they drag down. It should not be a disgusting thing that I love my wife. It should be a disgusting thing that I love somebody who is not my He says, you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my goodly, pleasant treasures. It, when we read from Amos uh, a little while ago, I'd like you to notice also here, if you'll turn to uh, again to Amos chapter 2, uh, continuing on that same thought when he said they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, uh, verse 7 of Amos chapter 2, right in the middle of it, it says, A man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. That sentence is enough for you all to understand what the text is talking about without me going into depth about this. Um, you, you're adult enough to know what that is talking about. But just back up a little bit. 
We don't even have to talk about that subject that's under consideration here. We can say that there are lots of people who have instilled in their children pride, anger, gluttony, sloth, indifference towards the church. Uh, you see this every Saturday here in the South. During football season, you see the parents, you see the man and the son going in into the same maid, right? They're geared up. They're ready to go. They're down there at the stadium. They're hooting and they're hollering and they're hoorraying. Where are they at on Sunday morning? The very fact that there's an echo in this building or any church building right now tells you why America and this world is in such a deplorable state that it is in. The very fact that for the past six months, coliseums, football stadiums, and the like have all been filled with unmasked people, and our churches are still hiding in the corner, there's a problem. It's time for people to get back to where they should have been all along. We have this idea here that a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. I remember a preacher speaking one time that, that he loved cars. In a period of about 24 years, he owned 42 cars. He just loved cars. Uh, the Lord took away his sight and made him legally blind, so he no longer drives cars. He still has some nice-looking ones. And by me telling you that description, you may know who that man is. He said, but what happened was, is uh, his daughter was walking to school at that time. School was only a block and a half away. But he felt like that walk to school was a little too much, so he bought her her first car. Spent about a year fixing it. Well, it spent about six months sitting in the garage and then he spent about six months fixing it up. To give her a car to drive that uh, block and a half or mile and a half, whatever it was that she used to walk, he now deemed too stressful for her. He passed on his love for cars and love for things to his children is what his own confession was. See, I told you told you that when the Lord said the press is full and it's overflowing, that there would be more than enough to condemn the wicked on that day? Where would you be if you were standing in the presence of God without Christ? Overflowing with wickedness, correct? Notice he says here, there's... there's uh, I guess uh, a couple of final things that we want to get to. He says, Behold, this is verse 7, Behold, I will raise them out of the place whither ye have sold them and will return your recompense upon your own head. Whatever the wicked, whatever the devil himself has done to God's people, he cannot fully and completely take from them because this is a God who sits in heaven that can restore unto us the years that the locusts have eaten. 
This is a God who at the final day will restore unto us those things that the world has taken from us. But he goes on to say, this is, this is even a greater thing right here. He says in verse 9, he says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Now, sometimes when, uh, sometimes when he makes this statement of proclaim it among the Gentiles, uh, he's having reference to us as tell them good news in the gospel. He's talking about this time when the Gentiles will be brought in and grafted in amongst Israel in gospel days. There are times when that is what's under consideration. That is not what's under consideration, however, in this text. Uh, When he's talking about proclaim ye among the Gentiles in this text, he's talking about the heathen and the wicked of the world. And this is notice what he says here. Proclaim this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Notice verse 11. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down. Verse 12. Let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. He's telling them, if you want to fight against God, Go ahead. Dear wicked, if you want to fight against God, prepare war. Yoke up all you mighty men. Wake them up. Tell the strong ones, you know, tell the weak ones, we are strong. Let's get the pep rally going. Let's just get as excited as we possibly can. Let's go out here and let's fight against God. Doesn't this sound like a wonderful thing? No, it doesn't. Watch this also. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Beat your plowshares into swords. Beat your pruning hooks into spears. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed what people are willing to sacrifice for the sake of war? Look at what they're, what, look at what they're willing to, to destroy. Look at what they're willing to tear down for the sake of war. But the Lord is also telling them, You coming against me? Don't just bring your guns. Don't just bring your tanks. Don't just bring your planes and your horses. You better find everything that you possibly can find and beat it into a weapon of war because you're going to need it. But he says in verse 12, he says, I will sit to judge all the heathen Round about. And so this is where we get verse 14 where he says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is not people making decision for the Lord. This is a guilty, uh, this is a guilty convict standing before a judge and you're hearing the judge's decision. That, that's what it's called in, in, a, in a legal court. The judge's ruling or the judge's decision. The valley of decision here is that God is making a decision against the world as a whole. Verse 16, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall quake. Remember we said in verse 7, he says, I will raise them out of the place whether you have sold them. That tells us that if the world around you forgets who you are, and you find yourself in the deepest, darkest dungeon this world has ever seen, the world may forget you. God 
will never forget you. And when the Lord roars out of Zion in verse 16, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, it says, but the Lord will be the hope of His people and the strength of the children of Israel. Our hope ultimately is not that the right politician gets back in office. I said this years ago that the last thing we need is a politician running this country. Well, we got a businessman running the country and they ran him out of town. Why? He couldn't be bought and he didn't play their games. And right now, I just really go for some mean tweets and $1.89 gas. How about y'all? Because I do remember a young man standing up saying, well, an old man standing up saying, imagine what's going to happen to Ukraine if this other guy gets in office. Well, the other guy didn't get in office. You got in office. And you know what I think is ultimately happening? I ultimately think that one man is using another country to erase the corruption of his son. But that's just crackpot theology, right? Oh, that's conspiracy theories. Wait six months and it might be true. Because it shows you just how depraved human beings are. You say, well, that's politics. Yes. But in no greater with no greater group of people in this world do you see corruption at its at its greatest than in the subject of politics. You know that great compound word, poly, meaning multiple, and ticks, blood-sucking animals. That's essentially what this is. The world itself may forget about you. God never will. He is the hope of His people. He is the strength of the children of Israel. And so shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no more strangers pass through her anymore. Oh, this, this, is, such, this is such a great chapter to close this book with. God is promising not only Israel in that day, but He's promising us even now that when the end comes, He wins. The people are delivered. You and I are delivered. We will be delivered because the blood of Christ was shed for us. The payment for our sin was made on Calvary's cross. When God walks into this earth again, when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth again, He will not come as a meek and lowly lamb. He will come as a roaring lion, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. He says here in verse 19 that Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah. I'm going to look out on the world here. It's going to be completely different. This new heavens and new earth that's described in Revelation uh, that is also alluded to here that the rivers will flow with waters and uh, the hills shall flow with milk. Uh, and they'll come forth out of the, there'll be a fountain that comes forth uh, out of the house of the Lord. All these great and abundant and abounding things here are going to be fantastic in the eyes of God's people. Eden will be gone. Egypt will be gone. Sin will be gone. Every trouble, every trial, every problem we ever had will be gone. The day of the Lord will be 
a gloomy and dark day for some people. Peter said that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord shall so come as a thief in the night. It will come as a thief in the night to those who are not God's people. To us who are God's people, it will not come as a thief in the night. It will come as a long-awaited guest. We have holidays around here. We have Christmas. We have Thanksgiving. We have this, that, and the other. Children call us and say, hey, we're on the way. We'll be there at such and such time. And you go about your business. You go about your day cleaning your house, doing whatever. And all of a sudden, you hear down the driveway comes the roll of tires. Here's an individual approaching. You didn't know what time they were coming, but you knew they were on the way. And when they get there, it's not a scary thing to you. It is a great and wonderful and joyous time. Jesus Christ will not come back as a thief in the night to us. He will come back as a long-awaited friend. He will come back as someone that we've looked for and longed for for generations. He may indeed suffer. He may indeed troubles and trials in this life that are, in some cases, unbearable. But He won't leave us, and He won't forgive us. Thank you all for your real good and patient attention.